Well, happy Mother's Day. Um, We have been in this series called His Story. And over the last three months, we've been exploring kind of the grand narrative that runs from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And it's a story about a father doggedly pursuing relationship with his prodigal children. Um, A couple weeks ago, Lee talked about the Great Commission. And the heartbeat of the Great Commission, as Jesus is about to go and be with the Father, is, listen, those of you who have been following me, now it's your turn to continue doing what I have been doing. So all authority has been given to me, so now I want you to go and make disciples, make passionate followers of me. And so do this through baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And in teaching them everything that I have taught and commanded you. But don't worry. I'm not leaving you alone. I will be with you always. And then last weekend, we talked about what Jesus meant by, I will be with you always. It's not just some memory of him that kind of keeps us going. He literally gives us his Holy Spirit. A counselor, a comforter, a helper, an advocate. Not simply to come alongside of us, but to be within us. Not only to transform us from the inside out, but to enable us, to equip us, to empower us, to be his representatives. And we looked at in Acts 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 4, how he said, Now listen, now once I give you the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These concentric circles, for us it might be in Costa Mesa and in California and maybe down in Mexico, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, you'll be my witnesses. Now, when I think about the Great Commission, my mind automatically thinks, well, mission out there, ends of the earth. And to be certain, that is a huge component of what it means to be a Christ follower, is representing him beyond the walls of this church. We're not called to be insular and just look inside and go, how can we care for one another, although that's important. But also, we have brothers and sisters around the world who desperately need help. We have those who don't even recognize that they can have a relationship with God in the ends of the earth. And we have a part to play in that. But if we just think of the Great Commission as being going out there, we can begin to overlook Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. We can begin to overlook the communities that God has planted us in. And this morning, what I really want to do is I want to focus on what I would suggest is one of the most overlooked mission fields that we have. And certainly, I would argue, the single most important mission field that we have. Because here's the thing. Discipleship is more than just getting somebody to pray a prayer. Discipleship is more than just, I mean, we can go on a missions trip down to Mexico for a weekend, build a house, and we may even be able to pray the sinner's prayer, maybe one day even hope to baptize somebody over that weekend. We can go for a month to Uganda and minister to people, and maybe we can see lives transformed, maybe we can see somebody come to know Jesus Christ and and see them baptized, but... There's another part of discipleship, and that is teaching them everything I've commanded you. And may I, may I suggest to you that that's not something that can happen over a weekend in Mexico or even over a month in Uganda. Because discipleship, training someone up in the way they should go, that happens over weeks and months and years and even decades of walking with somebody, pouring into them, having conversations along the way as, as life happens, the messiness of life being able to meet them in the midst of that 
brokenness. Oftentimes that looks like ministering and teaching them through our very lifestyle, through the things that go on in our own lives. Because remember, far more is caught than is taught. And our actions speak a whole lot louder than our words do. And so oftentimes it's what we do that actually declares what we believe. And so living out our faith in the midst of relationship, and that's the key component to discipleship in my opinion, is relationship. And as I think about it, it's a lot more difficult to do relationship in the ends of the earth than it is right here in our own Jerusalem, right where we live. And this morning, I want to focus in not just on Costa Mesa, because it, be it can be really easy to just kind of say, well, that's what we're talking about. How can we be ministers around here? I want to go even more close to home, literally into our homes. That, I would argue, is one of the most overlooked and certainly the most important mission field that we have. Because here's the thing. We live in a society that is all about image management. And many of us have gotten really good at this. From what we drive, to what we wear, to how we talk when we're at work or we're in community with people, to what we post on our social media outlets. We declare what we hope people want us, or what we want people to think about us. But there is one place where we can never manage our image. One place where we are known as we truly are, and that's in the home. It's where we let our hair down, take our makeup off, the people who live with us, whether it's our spouses, our children, our roommates, get a chance to see the real us. And I would argue that every single one of us that lives with someone else is discipling in their home, for better or for worse. The question then becomes, what are they learning from us? What is our life teaching them? Really, I think this morning what I want to do is I want to invite you into a conversation that we as a church staff and elders, God bless you, have been having for the last couple of months. And it's a conversation that began for me about five months ago, January 1st, 2014. Kathy and I, um, it was evening and we were just having one of those conversations where it's the new year and we're looking back over 2013, looking forward to 2014 and going, hey, what, what do we want to do differently? What, what was wonderful? Let's celebrate the good that God did. But what do we want to do differently in 2014? And then Kathy said something that I'll be honest with you. It, it absolutely felt like she decked me. She said, Eric, I want you to be the spiritual leader of our home. I want you to lead me and lead our sons. I just don't feel like you're doing that right now. <laughs> and I heard that and I went, I'm going to go outside for a little bit. <laughs> Fighting, I, I, it was like I got punched in the solar plexus and I, I was trying to catch my breath and I went out in the backyard, sat down in a chair staring up at the moon and I was hurt. Very hurt. But let me say this. Kathy was not being unfair. She was not being underhanded. She did not take a cheap shot. What really hurt about what she said is I knew that she was absolutely right. I was being a spiritual leader here at the church. And the people I pour into and disciple, you know, I was being intentional about those relationships. 
But when I came home, I took off that spiritual mantle. And it's not that I wasn't being a father. In fact, I was being the very best father I knew how to be. I mean, I didn't disengage when I got home. I was present. I helped keep the house relatively in order. I killed spiders. I came alongside my wife and supported her in parenting. I, um, you know, gave baths. I, I changed diapers. I, I taught my kids. I was co- both coaching them in different sports, as well as teaching them how to swim, as well as keeping their eye on the baseball to hit, you know, all of these kind of things. I was, in my opinion, being super dad. But Kathy's comment caused me to begin to reassess what I was doing as a father from an eternal perspective. And what I saw broke my heart. Because I was, I was expecting the church to train my kids up, quite honestly. I figured that it was the church's job. And as I think about it, you know, if I teach my son to keep his eye on the ball, but fail to teach him to keep his eye on Jesus Christ, then I failed him as a father. If my wife teaches my son how to be in touch with his emotions, but, or to talk to a girl, but fails to teach him how to actually have a conversation with God, then she's failed him as a mom. And in a lot of ways, I was disregarding my responsibility as a parent, spiritually speaking. And again, as I just said, I kind of figured it was the church's job to do this. And I want to point out that I'm not the only one who thinks this. In fact, there was a study done by George Barna of the Barna Research Group, one of the most respected um, kind of sociological organizations that studies trends not only within the church but within society and there are some things that he identified he said a large majority of churched believers rely upon their church rather than their family to train their children to become spiritually mature he went on to say in an average month Fewer than, one out of every, uh, fewer than one out of every ten churched families worships together outside of the church. And the same minimal number of people, families, study the Bible together at home or work together to address the needs of disadvantaged people in their community. Worship, prayer, studying God's word, serving together was not happening outside of church. For nine out of every ten families in the church. He goes on to say, apart from church-based programs, the typical Christian family spends less than three hours per month in endeavors designed to jointly develop or apply their faith. And then finally, (laughs) most Christian parents do not believe that they're doing a good job facilitating the spiritual development of their children. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. That first one that he says, a large majority of churched believers rely upon their church rather than their family to train their children to become spiritually mature. Yep, I was living that way. 
and it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it, we, it's almost one of these, like, well, if I feel like the responsibility is someone else's, then it's easy for me to disengage. It's easy for me to pass it off. So I, I want the street in front of my house to be clean. But it's not my job. That's the city's job. So when I walk by trash sitting in the gutter, even if it's right in front of my house, I walk right by it and I wait for the street sweeper to take care of that. Their responsibility, not mine. Sure, I want my kids to be able to read. But I'm not a trained teacher. And they go to school for that. So, you know, when they're home, I don't read books with them. I let them watch TV. Because I figured it's the teacher's job to teach them how to read. Their responsibility, not mine. And of course I want my sons to have a vibrant relationship with God. But I'm not a trained youth pastor or children's minister. They go to church for that. My responsibility is to get them to church. It's the church's job to take care of it beyond that, right? Their responsibility, not mine, right? And in fact, that's not the case. Because scripture after scripture throughout the Bible talks about the fact that it never says it's the church's responsibility to train our children up in the way they should go so that when they are older they will not depart from it. It says that instead about parents. We are the primary spiritual leaders of our home. And Deuteronomy 6 is one of the clearest and most central texts that speaks to this. And by the way, it speaks about it both in Old and New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. But this is the passage it keeps coming back to. And I think the reason why we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6 this morning, the, the passage we're going to look at is called the Shema which may not mean a whole lot to us because when we think of what's the most important passage in Scripture, we probably think of John 3.16. But if I had a Jewish person sitting before us this morning and said, what's the most important passage in all of the Scripture? They would point to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 11, because this, the Shema, is the number one prayer in the Jewish faith. It is the first passage that a young Jewish child will learn when they're young. And it has become a prayer that is prayed throughout the day. Shema simply means hear. It's the first word of this prayer. It's something that Jews pray every day in the morning when they wake up and at night before they go to bed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments I am giving you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Directly preceding this, in the chapter before, Moses has been just reminding the people of Israel about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that God had given them. They are standing on the cusp of the Promised Land, something that for 40 years they've been in the wilderness, wandering around, waiting to go in, and God is about to usher them in. And Moses says, before you enter in, I want to remind you not to forget these commandments, not to turn a blind eye to them. Don't disregard them, because if you don't, when the Lord, this is verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build and houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. When you are in a land of plenty, and I would suggest that we are in a land of plenty, When you experience the comfort of where I am bringing you, and I think that we are all very familiar with comfort in ways that previous generations never could have imagined. When you have all of these good things, be careful not to allow them to become rival gods for your heart. Be careful not to turn to other gods. The very first verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. There can be no competition for your heart. Don't turn to other things and say, I will organize my life around you. To worship simply means to organize our life around something that we find worthy. And I think when we think about it that way, there's a lot of things that we worship. Here, O Lighthouse Church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is a jealous God. He will not share our devotion, our worship, our love with any others. And as we read this, especially given the conversation that we're having, our tendency would be to go right to verse 7 of the Shema. These commandments are to be impressed upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Because there, okay, you're right, it's our responsibility as parents, but I don't want us to jump there. Because verse 5 and 6 come before that, and I think that they are crucial and foundational to the rest of what comes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your heart. It's easy for us to think well, I want to I train my kids up in the way they should go. But what about our own relationships with God? Do we ever stop and kind of assess, well, where am I at? Is this true for me? Because the reality is we can't pass on something to our children or to our spouse or to a roommate or to anybody else that we try to come alongside. We can't pass something on that we don't have ourselves. And as we already talked about, actions speak louder than words. It does me no good. I mean, I can't expect my sons to do better than what I model for them. If I'm not willing to read Scripture in their presence, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, my tendency is, I, I value reading God's Word, but my tendency lately has been to come to work and read the first thing I do when I get in the office, which is great. I'm getting my own spiritual nourishment, but my boys don't get it, see it modeled for them at home. They don't wake up and see their dad at the dining room table studying God's Word. Why would I think then that they would value reading God's Word if they don't see me doing it? As a father, I begin to assess the ways that I had... I, I value prayer, not only individually, but as a couple. You realize that there are studies that a couple that prays at least three times a week has a less than 1% chance of divorce in a society in which we have a more than 50% divorce rate. In a Costa Mesa, 70% divorce rate. And Newport Beach, 
even higher. In a society in which the divorce rate is skyrocketing, studies have shown that if a couple will pray together at least three times a week, together, their marriage has an astronomically higher percentage rate of surviving. Because it's really hard to be angry at somebody when you're praying with them. You kind of have to lay down the bitterness and the resentment and all that other stuff. Trust me, I know, because it's really hard when I'm mad at Kathy to want to move towards her to pray. But if I'm not willing to model that for my family to pray with them, then why would I think that they would desire to pray on their own? If I don't treat my wife with respect and love, then why would I expect my boys to do it? And if as they look at my life, they can't recognize through the choices that I make that God is central in my life, that Jesus Christ isn't just my Savior, but He's my Lord, then why would I expect them to make that choice? Because here's the truly sobering statistic. And this one scares the poo out of me. There was a study, and there's been multiple studies that have been done, that have been looking at the church in the West and has recognized that the church is in decline. Meaning that while people who declare that they are spiritual is going up, people who identify themselves as a part of a church is actually in decline. And that is particularly true of the younger generations. 18 to 29-year-olds right now are flocking away from the church. And so some... these studies show, and it's a pretty large thing because there's so many studies that have been done now, anywhere from 60 to 90% of children that are currently in church right now will walk away from the church and walk away from their faith by the time they're a sophomore in college. That's scary to me. Which begs the question, why? Why is this happening? Why are people particularly in that demographic, flocking away from the church. And so there was a guy named David Kinneman who wrote a book named Unchristian in which he set out to answer that question. Why is the young generation flocking away from the church? This is what he found. He discovered that the majority of 18 to 29-year-olds viewed Christianity as hypocritical. What was spoken about on the weekends and how people actually lived were diametrically different. It would be easy for us to go, well, yeah, you know, those television preachers who, you know, say, give me your money, and then the way that they're living, it's their fault. Or maybe it's those street preachers, you know, the anger that they spew. Yeah, it's total hypocrisy. But I think it's a lot closer to home. Because for a lot of these kids, and I'm not saying an across-the-board But for a lot of these kids, they're dragged to church by their parents who are hoping that the church will train them up in the way they should go. That's my mom whose phone is ringing right now. (laughs) Nicely done. (laughs) These kids will watch their parents get, they'll get dragged to church as they're growing up to learn what they should be, to learn what they should do. And then they go home and they watch their parents living like every other family around them. For a lot of them, Their parents' marriage will end in divorce even though they claim to be Christ followers and have made a covenant not only with their spouse but with God that we will not walk away from this. And they've watched their parents say one thing, live one way on Sunday 
and then live a completely different way throughout the week. And which one are they going to listen to? What their parents say or what their parents do? Here's the thing. I want my sons to grow up to be men who are identified by loving God first and foremost. And to, have their, to be leaders in the sense that they are willing to know who they are. Not allow other people to tell them who they are. Know that they are sons of God who never have to question that fact. Never have to, to give other people the power to define them and therefore they'll do whatever that person wants them to. If I had daughters, I'd desire the same for them. That they would not need some boy to tell them that they're okay. That they would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are beloved. That they are beautiful. That they are a daughter of the living God. And no boy who just wants their body, is worthy of them. I'd want that. But, (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to guess how many there are, I'll just tell you. There are 168 balls in this bag. 168. One ball for every hour of every week. Every week we are given 168 hours of which we choose how we spend our time, where we invest them. Some of it is sleep. Some of it is eating. Some of it is thinking on the porcelain throne, all those kind of things. (laughs) This one ball right here, This one ball represents the hour that we spend here on Sunday morning. This one ball, and don't say, oh, it's an hour and 15 minutes. I know when you get here. (laughs) Prove me wrong. This one ball represents the amount of time that your children, that you have children right now, spend across the street with other people pouring into them and teaching them how they should live. Is this enough for your sons to know what it means to be a man of God? Is this one hour enough for your daughters to know that they are beloved, that they are valuable, that they have a part to play in this epic narrative of God redeeming mankind? I would suggest that for me and my household, this is not enough. Oh, we go to small group. Okay, so let's add two more balls to that. Now we've got three out of 168. Brothers and sisters, I am inviting you into a conversation that's been wrecking me for five months. Because I have been relying upon this one ball far too much to be the spiritual foundation for my children, to be the spiritual foundation for my marriage placing all of my emphasis as the spiritual leader of my home into providing a good thing on Sunday, but forgetting the other 167 hours that I have with my kids, that I have with my wife, that I have with the people in my home. Forgetting that my lifestyle during this time is going to speak more loudly than how I speak during this one hour. And in fact... I've got boys who are known as pastor's kids, PKs, and we know how those turn out sometimes when they have seen their parents live a different way 
than how they present themselves on Sunday morning. And I do not want that for my boys. But I'll tell you, the way that I was leading them, the intentionality that I did not have in my family was leading to just that. Having boys that when they get to be a sophomore in college or even a freshman, if they were to move away from the home, would go, why on earth would I actually go to church? I don't believe that garbage. It was pretty evident that my dad didn't believe it. He just pretended he did. Why would I want to be a hypocrite? And then why would I be mad at my boys if they actually had enough integrity to go, this is what I believe. I don't believe. I have a far greater influence on my sons than anyone else. It is my responsibility. It is my wife's responsibility as the parents of my household to train my children up in the way they should go so that when they're older, they won't be one of those 60 to 90% who go, I don't believe this stuff. I just went because I had to. Now, all of this begs the question, okay, well, are you just kind of saying you as the church get to wash your hands of this and you don't have any responsibility in this whole thing? And I would actually say absolutely not. In fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. The church has a tremendous part to play in this whole conversation. It's just different from what you and what I may have been led to believe. Ephesians is toward the end of the Bible. It's 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then we get to Galatians, and then to Ephesians. The point so far that we have made is that it is our responsibility as men and women of Jesus Christ not to live as one-hour Christ followers on Sunday mornings, but to live as 24-7 Christ followers in our own lives. And from this, the influence that's going to have on our children to live with intentionality will have far-reaching ramifications in their life because we need to live and parent with intentionality. If we are not planning how we are living, then we're pretty much planning to fail. And by the way, something that I, I, I do want to articulate here is as a, is a Christ follower, and I'm a pastor, but I'm first and foremost a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't have this all figured out. I don't have this all together. And I'm still learning what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And as the Shema reminds me, I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my strength, and I need to keep the commandments on my own heart. But that doesn't mean that because I don't have it all figured out, I don't start to pour into and invest in my children. Because if I was waiting until I had it all together, I'd never begin at all. So what I do is I invite my family into the messiness of following Jesus Christ. Rather than pretending like I have all the answers spiritually, I bring my wife into the things that I'm wrestling with and I ask her to pray and join me in that with me. And she does the same thing with me. Rather than pretending that I have all the answers from the word to give to my kids, rather than being a pearl pelter who's constantly just going, here, you need to know this, you know, and you need to know this. Here's another good pearl of wisdom. You know, we know how much kids enjoy that. We know how much as spouses we enjoy when our spouse is pelting us with their pearls of wisdom, right? 
Rather than that, I invite them into what I am learning. So rather than, I sit down all the time and go, so what did you guys learn at school today? Ethan, because Grace is not going to school yet. Ethan, what did you learn at school today? Five years old. I don't remember. You're five. And he's not reading yet, so really all, all he can say, what he, what he gets out of Scripture is what we read together. So here's what I've been doing lately. Man, I, I was, as we're sitting at the dinner table, I was reading this passage out of Scripture this morning, and it really impacted me. Let me share it with you, and I'll grab my Bible and actually read it, and then I'll talk about what got stirred up for me. I'm inviting them into the fact that, oh, my daddy learns too. He doesn't have it all figured out, which is important. I don't want them to think that I've got it all figured out. I don't want them to think that I'm Superman, because how can a mere mortal come to Superman to talk about their heart? I want my boys to see I don't have it all figured out so that I am approachable, that I'm vulnerable, so they can be vulnerable with me. But anyway, this is, we could go on for hours on that. What is the purpose of the church if we are the ones who are responsible for being the spiritual leaders of our home? Glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Christ himself gave some people to be apostles, others to be prophets, others evangelists and pastors and teachers in order to do all the work that needs to be done to be the ministers of the whole world, right? Wrong. That's not what it says. He gave some to be prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip the people. Lost my place. To equip the people of God, you, for works of service. So that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. My responsibility as a pastor, our responsibility as a church, is not to train your families up in the way they should go. Our responsibility as a church is to equip you to be spiritual leaders of your home. It's not to teach your kids everything they need to know about how to be a Jesus Christ follower. It's to equip you to minister to them. It's not to be the spouse, the emotional counterpart to your spouse that they need. It's to equip you to be the emotional counterpart to your spouse. To help you lean into your marriage, especially when things get difficult. So they don't just throw up your hands and walk away and say, it's impossible. Our responsibility as a church is to equip you to be ministers in the spheres of influence that God has placed you in, in your family, in your community, in your workplace, in this city, and to the ends of the earth. That's our responsibility. And I love, I'm going to keep reading a little bit more. Verse 14. Once we do that, once we each begin to live out our God-given role and responsibility as the ministers of our homes and disciples in our spheres of influence, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning, cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemings. Our children will no longer be dictated by what they hear on television or what their favorite... You know, pop stars saying they should live like, or what their friends are saying they need to do in order to be cool. No longer will we be tossed back and forth. We will have a maturity that helps give us a foundation to live the way that God is calling us to live. 
to live not as hypocrites, but as integrous followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will all grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Jesus Christ. We, as families, will begin to represent Jesus Christ in our homes and in our neighborhoods, in our schools. We, as husbands and wives, will begin to really, truly embody the relationship, be the example of the Christ in the church that we were intended to be. Marriage is kind of that unity that, yeah, whatever, you know, those of you who know it, know it. That's the point. The church is here to support you. And I want to tell you this. We as a church are still figuring out what this looks like. This is a very new conversation that I'm inviting you into kind of at the ground floor. We've been thinking about it for a couple of months, but the, the real thing that we're trying to figure out right now is how do we become a church that is about equipping you as opposed to simply teaching you? How do we become a church that's not about programs that do the work, but equip you to be the ministers yourselves? It's going to change everything. And we're still in the first process. The elders, the pastors, our staff are wrestling with this right now. I was at a a, a retreat or a conference all week trying to figure out what does this look like for across the street in our youth and in our children's ministries to begin to allow this to process and percolate through the entire church so that we are not about simply teaching and doing the work, but equipping you. But there is some really fun and good news in this as well. Even though we are just waking up to this conversation, even though this is pretty new for us, as we began to step back and go, how has God been working in this? We realized that for the last three years, he's already been turning the ship. He's already been redirecting us as a church. And it started across the street, not over here. It started with our children, the youngest ones. We've already been doing this for three years and we're just waking up to, you know what, we as a church need to do this wholeheartedly. And one of the people who has been at the very forefront of this is Danielle. Danielle, are you here right now? Okay, Danielle, come here. This is Danielle Shergi. She is our family's minister. And I I am very intentional about calling her a family's minister and not a children's minister, as many people in the church would refer to her in this role. And there's a very tangible reason for that. I'm going to let Danielle share why she is a family's minister, not a children's minister. Hello. Well, I'm so excited when, when Erica told me, hey, I want you to answer this question. Um, I got to admit, I was um, pretty stoked and also pretty nervous because I was like, oh, my gosh, this has been three years going on. How do I answer this uh, question? So I kind of, I think I really just want to take you guys a little bit on the journey of how I came into family ministry, family ministry. Um, I attended a Christian college called Hope International University, and all throughout college, um, leaders, teachers, professors um, were running up to me and telling me, you need to change your degree, you need to go into children's ministry. And, um, you know, I I was always like, oh, you know, I like kids, but I'm going to be a teacher. And um, I never felt that calling, that passion for children's ministry. I loved kids. Um, I loved working with them, and I think that that's what a lot of my professors and friends and leaders saw. But I was like, I, I just, I don't think that that's it. I don't think that that's what God's calling me to. So fast forward 
to um, me being a mom of three and not um, three precious girls and a couple boys, but three boys, all boys. And um, that was just a brand new world to me. And um, I'll just never forget just being a mom and thinking this is what I've been waiting for. This is the moment to be a mom. And then going to God and saying, is this really it? Like, this is what being a mom is about. I was exhausted. Um, I was reading every mommy blog. I was um, reading every book I could grab onto. I was going to anything that this world could offer about being a mom. And I wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilled. I was like, God, did you really make me for this? And I love my children, love my children. But um, just throughout the day and the different cleaning up the poop or wars or um, the crazy wrestling, I mean, there was just so much. And it was like, oh, I just, I'm not, God, what is it? And I'll never forget. I had a friend who invited me, hey, I have this class. And um, I want you to come to it. It's an eight-week thing, and it's a book study. And I remember being like, I'm not reading no book. Are you kidding me? I'm a mom right now. I have three boys. I have an infant. I have twins. I'm like, this is nuts. I'm not going to that. Well, needless to say, I had an awful day with the children. And my husband came in the door um, from work, and I said, I'm going to a book study. And I'm going to go for eight weeks, and I'm going to be gone. And I remember just going out. And it's funny because my friend's right here who invited me. And um, I, I just sent her a text, and I said, I'm on my way. I'm coming. I'll meet you there. And she's like, okay, okay. And um, I walk into this class, and um, it, is, it was a book called Spiritual Parenting. An Awakening for Today's Families. Um, Wow, emotional. This book changed my life. Um, She asked me questions about what I was doing to allow God to lead in me to my family. What do you mean what I was doing? I was doing nothing. (laughs) I was just trying to clean diapers and get through life and get to the next morning and the next day. And um, I was working, you know, with children's ministry here. And I was like, you know, I'm getting them to church. We're feeding them. We have a great program. It's fun. I wasn't inviting him in. And I'll never forget how I ran home. And I ran to my husband and I said, we need to do this. We need to become spiritual parents. We need to invite God into this home. And we need to ask him to lead us daily into these young boys' lives. Because I don't know about you, but I want them to be passionate and on fire for God. And I began to just get this passion to bring spiritual parenting into my house. And I'll never forget this conversation. I think it was like a couple weeks in. And really, literally, every night I would come back from the class, I would make Chris sit down and I would just be like, like pour everything out. Like, I'd be like, this is amazing. You've got to read this. And um, we began discussing and I was like, Chris, this is it. We are going to share with the world about this spiritual parenting idea. And it's going to be so great. In like 15 to 20 years after we've gone through this and after we've learned the kinks and all of this stuff, you know, God's going to use us and it's going to be awesome. And um, slowly through different trainings, through people in my life, uh, Pastor Frank being one of them, um, different seminars and different connections that I had through college, I began to see 
that children's ministry was starting to change into family ministry and that there was a group of people who had been taking this course, Spiritual Parenting, and they began to ask the questions, how then can we change our program across the street to equip parents to understand this? And I will never forget, I stood up and I was like, in a group of people, and I'm like, I want to go and take this. I want to take this to churches. I want to do this. I want to start this family ministry thing. I don't even know what it is, but I want to do it. And God, through, you know, probably like six months, um, you know, I just felt God call me. And he said, you know what? You keep thinking somebody else is going to do it, and it's going to be later on the road, but it's now, girl. And I'm taking you now, and you're going to go bring it into Lighthouse, and you're going to go share with these parents and with these families and with these grandparents. And we are going to have you come, and I'm going to have you take this spiritual parenting and start bringing it into the home. And so that, in a very big, long um, explanation, is why um, I call it family ministry and not just children's ministry, because I feel like my part is really to equip the parents and the grandparents. No matter what your family may look like, Mm -hmm. I am here to equip and support you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's really exciting. Thank you, Daniel. Stay up here with me. Whoops. And we wonder why we have technical difficulties with our Do you want to use this? mics. Yeah, that would be helpful. Okay. Thank you. Um, what I hope that you hear in that is that Danielle is not here to train your children up in the way they should go. The volunteers that help every week, and by the way, for those of you who volunteer across the street, thank you for investing in the next generation uh, of Christ followers. And that time is important. It's not wasted time. We're not just, it's not child care. It is not child care. In fact, some of the conversations they're having, they have been ahead of us in this conversation we're having. It's really fun that we've been catching up to them. That said, Danielle's primary responsibility is to equip you to be the spiritual leader of your home. Lee and I are recognizing that our primary responsibility as pastors is to equip you to be the spiritual leaders in your sphere of influence, whether that's in your workplace. Really, to live out your faith so that you're not just a one-hour Christ follower, but that you're a 24-7 Christ follower. And this only happens as we are trying to figure out how that looks for us as well. We're still growing. We're still figuring this out. And this morning, what I'd love for you to do um, as we're kind of wrapping up is to pray over our families. And there are, as you mentioned, they look a lot of different ways. Grandparents parenting right now. Single moms, single dads raising their kids up. Families that are really more spiritual families than even blood-related, where you just feel like, this is my community, and I just want you to pray over our families as a church that the Holy Spirit would continue to help us figure out what it looks like to live out our faith in the home and continue to d- disciple one another up. Please. I would be honored. Thank you. All right. Power. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for entrusting these children to us. Thank you for giving us the privilege of pointing them to you, even though at times we may feel so undeserving. Help us, Father, to be a spiritual parent with eyes to see what matters most to you. I pray, Father, that you will show us 
how to create environments in our home and in our lives in ways that will reflect the truth of who you are to all those around us. I want all of us to know you accurately and fully. And may our homes be a place where truth and love prevail above all else. Please reveal your desires to us, Lord, and create in us a heart that will listen and obey. We trust you, Lord, and we pray for your guidance and your wisdom and your power to do all of these things that you so desire in us. We are yours. Our home is yours. And these children are yours. May you be glorified, Lord. Amen. Amen. One last thought, and thank you, Danielle. And I, I thank you for being out ahead of this and for in many ways um, driving this movement that I'm just waking up into. But um, I, I recognize that for some of us, those of us who are parents right now with kids in the home, this can be overwhelming. This can be scary. And I just want to be the first to say welcome to my pain. I've been dealing with this for the last five months. And it's really the fruit that has been born out of this in my own family is huge. I'll give you one example. One of the ways I felt challenged to step up into this is to bless my sons regularly. As God, when, when Jesus was coming up out of the water, God says, this is my son, whom I love. And in him I'm well pleased. And I have been, I have been felt challenged to, to bless my boys every night. So when, I go to, when they go to bed at night, whereas before maybe two or three times a week I'd be praying with them, now I'm intentional about praying with both of them individually each night as they're going to bed. But not only praying for them, then I bless each of them. And it's pretty much born out of the desires I want for them. And so my blessing for my boys typically runs something like, Ethan, may you know who you are. May you know what you're about. Father, I pray that you would bless my son and cause your face to shine upon him. Would you use my son to advance your kingdom? And Ethan, I want you to know that I love you and I am so proud of you and I'm so grateful you're my son and if there's something that he did that day specifically I will call that out in him and specifically tell him today when, I, when you were swimming in the pool and you were exhausted and I know that it, it was really hard you continued to persevere and you didn't give up I'm so proud of you for that that's one way that it's beginning to bear fruit um, but there are some of us in here this morning that hear this message and begin to feel shame and guilt. Because perhaps at this point you don't have a child in the house. Maybe your home is empty. Your children have moved out. They have children of their own. And you kind of feel like, would have loved this conversation 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I want you to know that just because you may have retired, just because you may not be daily training your kids up in the way they should go, doesn't mean that you retire from having an influence in your families. You have a tremendous influence. In fact, as the studies show, we as parents have a three times greater influence over our kids than any demographic of the church, whether it's pastor, 
youth pastor, youth worker. And that doesn't cease just because the kids move out. You still have a tremendous role to play in spiritually training up your children and your grandchildren and even your great-grandchildren. My prayer for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit would both protect you from hearing the lies of the enemy that he would love to bring out of this and begin to attack you. And if you're feeling condemned, that's not from God. But if you're feeling convicted, I'm pretty sure that's probably from the Holy Spirit. And then there are those of us who hear this and go, well, I don't have a spouse or I don't have children. And you know, God, how hard I've been trying. And Mother's Day hurts. I know for us, um, today's a, a particularly interesting day in the sense that this was Kathy's due date for Sienna, the, the little girl that uh, God has taken care of now. And so today can be a painful day for many of us. And what I want to do is simply invite the Holy Spirit into this place. And as we go into a time of worship, that the Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and take this, the, the good seed that God wants to press firmly into the soil of our hearts and remove the condemnation, remove the attacks of the enemy. So, would you bow your heads with me? Great time. Bow your heads with me and let's rock out with the Spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to be a family. I thank you that we get to be imperfect representatives of you, but you still allow us to be your representatives. I thank you that you call us your children, even though we don't represent you all that well. I thank you that you have allowed us to be your representatives, even though we are so imperfect. And for those of us, Father, that are hurting this morning, perhaps feeling like this message is not for us, it's only for those people that you've blessed with children, we all have people in our lives that get to see the real us. May we, may our lives represent you and your heart. Father, would you, as the Shema has said, continue to be true in our lives, that we would not give away pieces of our heart to other good things, other gods. Would you, God, be God alone in our lives? Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strength? Would you help us to be faithful representatives of his heart, to, to do what he said? As Jesus said, if you actually do what I say, then you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Father, before we seek to preach to anybody, Holy Spirit, would you transform our hearts so that our lives would speak loudly and faithfully. For your name's sake. Amen. Let's worship.